every once in a while, at least in my marriage, um, Heidi and I begin to discuss a particular topic, and soon that discussion um, turns into what we like to call uh, here in my household an intense discussion, and uh, I'm not sure if you, uh, I'm, actually uh, let me rephrase that, I'm sure you don't have those in your marriage, um, but every once in a while, uh, as Heidi and I are um, arguing, uh, I noticed that we turned to a few tactics uh, in our arguments, and I thought maybe we could point out some of those here tonight in the case, in the rare case that maybe uh, some of you guys actually relate to those. So here's what we're calling this. We're calling this in a, mar- a marital or dating conversation, in quotes, have you ever performed the, and first, let's call this the family flaw. Now, um, this happens as you begin to discuss something with your wife, and uh, it's beginning to escalate, and then all of a sudden, there's a random dart thrown in, like, oh yeah, well, my family's better than yours. And it's like that. That's, we're not even talking about, oh, yeah well, yeah, well, my mama like can knock your mama off her feet. You know what I'm saying? Like, have, you seen, have, have you ever seen this in your marriage? Where like, all of a sudden, it just becomes this my family's better than yours banter. And pretty soon you've realized you've just said some of the most hurtful things ever in that conversation. Again, we're talking in hypotheticals, right? Like maybe this might happen in your marriage. Once or twice, this has happened in mine, right? The family flawed dart throwing. The next, I'm going to call it this, under your breath. Now, uh, this is one of the tactics where, um, where you know, you really want to say something, uh, but, but you know that you shouldn't, so you say it under your breath, right, it's, and you kind of like mutter it, and you know what the other party says, excuse me, what did you say, right, oh, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't say anything, yeah, no, I saw you lipping words, what did you say, you know, and then in the end, you end up saying it anyway, right? And then you sleep on the couch and things aren't good. None of these are good things, by the way. I'm not condoning these. I'm just simply pointing them out. The next creatively titled, uh, The Yesters. Now, let me explain. Uh, some of you, when you start having an intense discussion in your marriage, uh, you are the quickest to bring up yesterday, yesterweek, month, and yesteryear. Like, it's all in the past for you, you know? You're discussing an issue right here and right now, but you're like, oh yeah, well yesterday, you remember that whole thing? Like, remember how awesome I served you, right? Or like three years ago, do you remember that whole thing when I took you on the thing and gave you the flower things? Like, that was awesome, right? That should make up completely for what I'm doing now, right? The, and any of you guys yester people? You're just like, okay, you haven't read First uh, Corinthians 13, uh, that love keeps no record of wrongs. Next. Uh, I have a tendency every once in a while to, to perform this one. I call it the humble pie. Um, this is when you just actually revert to the other way, like th- things are starting to escalate. And so Heidi would say, like, you did this, you know, you did this. Yeah, you're right, I did. And uh, I'm really sorry. And no, you did this too. Yeah, I know, you're right. I'm like the worst person ever, the worst husband, you know. And you're trying not to smile, but you're just apologizing for everything, you know. Like, yes, you're right. You should have never married me. I'm sorry. I'm the worst husband ever. Uh, again, hypothetical, like if I was talking to my wife. Um, any of you guys like false humble pie people? You just like, okay, yeah, three of you and the rest of you are too prideful to admit it. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the last one and um, the one that plays most pertinent in my household is what I'm calling DSM. Now, um, I know some of you know what the DSM is. It is a book uh, filled with psychological disorders, Okay. And um, my wife uh, is a, uh, she has her master's in psychology, and so uh, it's, it never fails that pretty soon as we begin to discuss, uh, pretty soon she'll throw out some random disorder that I have, right? Uh, and so she'll say something to the effect of, well, you have HDHABC. I'm like, what? I don't even, like, what is that? She, Look it up in the DSM, you know what I mean? It's on page 333, that's what you have. I'm like, I don't, well, you, yeah, you have crazy face syndrome, that's what you have. Like, I, I'm like trying to battle it, you know? That's not in there, crazy face syndrome. But the one thing that my wife, uh, it seems like every, I don't know, uh, two or three days, uh, she says that I have a multiple personality disorder, right? And, um, and, and you know, I, fair enough, right? And, and what she's saying is like, yeah, how, like, how can you be this way, right, that, right, right, like right over here? And then give you like 20 minutes, and it's like all of a sudden you're, you're schizophrenic. Like, what's, what's going on? You know, I'm like, I don't, stop saying big words. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not, what do I look like? Dictionary.com? Come on, like, help a brother out here. She'll, she'll, she'll say something like, you, you have multiple personality disorder, right? I would actually venture to say, as I've been thinking about it more and more, and as we discuss those things in my household, it's, 
It's like our biggest flaw in general. Like all of us. In fact, I would say that um, of the church, that one of the biggest things the world says is, yeah, like, why are you guys this way over here and this way over here? Why isn't there any consistency? Uh, why, and sometimes they would use the word hip- hypocrisy, why are you such a hypocrite? Like, you say all this, but then I see you in this area, and it's like we live two lives, some of us. And again, I, I know that there are some people in here that are 100% consistent and the same all the time. For those people, tonight you won't relate very well. Uh, for the rest of us who struggle being consistent, being who we say that we are, uh, being a man who um, not just speaks things but ends up following those things, a woman, for those folks uh, here tonight, we're going to take a whole different view at this, this two-life syndrome that I feel like has gripped us in the church. In fact, it's become our biggest enemy in evangelism or sharing your faith. The world looks in, they're like, yeah, even those people can't even be consistent in what they're saying, so why would I ever adhere to that? If you ever have struggled with that, my friends, I welcome you to tonight, and I want to invite you guys to open your Bibles to Hebrews 11. Tonight we get to the, um, the most famous, I would say, at least one of the top two or three of all Jewish characters as the prince of Egypt calls him, Moses, right? They pronounce it so weird in that movie, but Moses is a huge Jewish um, character. They're written about in at least um, three, four, five, six, seven books in the Old Testament, specifically written about in many New Testament books. Ends up writing the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And he's this representation of the releasing of slavery for the Jewish nation. And so, they really are interested in the character of Moses. So, if you're the writer of Hebrews, and you're building a case on these powerful characters of faith, of course, one of them should include this character of Moses. That's why we're going to spend two weeks on him. So tonight, creatively entitled Moses Part 1. Let's start in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. You guys all there? Say I'm there. By, thank you. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the, and what's the word there? To the reward. Now, we have many questions to answer, and our hope tonight is that God will reshape our hearts, giving us a consistency, but it all starts here in verse 23. The scripture says this, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, our first question in verse 23 is, whose faith are we talking about? So it starts out, by faith, Moses, but then you'll notice, after the comma, was hidden for three months by his what? By his rents. Amron and Jochebed are his two parents. And so we can understand the biblical Exodus story of this. I think we should turn there. So here's the Old Testament reference of this story. It starts in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, and carries through the first two verses of chapter 2. Then Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and probably the most powerful man, at least top two or three of the world at this time, commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, the Jews, you shall cast into the Nile. That's a river and that's not good, okay? What he notices, if you know the story, is Pharaoh recognizes that the Jews are growing in number. They're, of course, enslaved. And so as they're growing in number, he decides that to battle this, the best way to do that is murder, So here's what we're going to do. Any young child that's born, we're going to throw them in the river and hope for the best. But you shall let, in his grace, it seems, every daughter live. And here comes the entry of Moses, verse 1 of chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three days. Months. Uh, we better define fine if we uh, could. Uh, the Hebrew word is tov, and it means good. 
Because we could look at this first and say, so she had other boys, but Moses was fine, and so she really wanted to protect him. The other, she's like, yeah, throw him in the Nile, right? Like, that, that's not what's happening here. She sees Moses, and the sense is that there's this heaviness, maybe even to the understanding of who Moses might become. We don't know. It's not in the text. But at least there's this weightiness to Moses being tov, Moses being good. So the question is, where is their faith? Uh, Verse uh, 23 again says, look at this. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Uh, So what you should be saying is, uh, yeah, they were afraid. Like they hid him. They didn't want him to die. No, they weren't afraid of the king's edict. By hiding him, what were they doing? Moses' parents were putting their lives on the line. By hiding their son, if they would have been found out, it would have been the death of Amram and Jochebed. And so what they do in hiding is not just protect their son, but act, my friends, in faith. Uh, There's an ancient legend that says that soon uh, Pharaoh realized that there were a bunch of um, babies being hidden. And so here's what the legend says they did. Uh, the Egyptian uh, women would take their babies into the homes of the Hebrews. And for those of you that have kids, you know that it's kind of a domino effect. Once, kids, once one kid starts crying, like it just becomes this huge cry fest. Have you seen this? still happens in adults sometimes, right? Like one adult starts crying, everyone. But the, the thought was by Pharaoh, I'm going to bring in uh, these, these uh, Egyptian babies. What they would do sounds uh, horrible. They would prick the babies, make them cry. And then the thought was like somewhere hidden under the couch or something. Ah, like here comes this Hebrew kid, right? Throw him in the Nile. Like, so that was kind of their process once he realized Moses, what I'm saying, wasn't the only baby that was being hidden. Let me say it this way. The faith of Moses' parents had tremendous impact on Moses' life. The faith, or lack thereof, of your parents has had tremendous impact on your life. Let me say it one more way. For those of you that are parents, your faith has tremendous impact on your children. One of the things that I love here is the example of the faith of Moses' parents. And it begs me to ask you this question. How did your parents' faith affect you? And I know some of you would say like... Like, what, what faith? Like, my, my parents did not have any faith. And, well, that deeply impacted you. Helped shape you as a kid. It helped not shape you as a kid. For me, I can say my parents, uh, I grew up in the church, was in the church since I was in the womb. In fact, there wasn't really a, a season in my life where I've really been out of the church. One of the ways that my parents shaped my faith the most is when I was called into ministry at the age of 13, they weren't the parents that said, come on, seriously? Like, you really think this is going to work out? Like, what what are you going to do about the green? Like, did you know ministry doesn't pay well, right? My dad was a businessman. I commend my parents because never once did my parents come down to my calling and say, you're an idiot, it's never going to work out. My parents let me live adventure. As a young kid, they let me travel the world and they let me experience the awesome nature of Christ as a young kid letting me flesh out my call. And honestly, I commend my parents for doing that. Huge. Because I know for many of you who have have had even older kids and your kid comes to you 13, 14, hey, I'm going to go in the ministry? You're like, yeah, like that'll work out real well. Like what Bible verses do you even know right now? You know what I'm saying? Seriously. And, And I was very green. I could at least read the Bible with some semblance of passion. Though my parents, like all of us, have many flaws, one of the things they did well was let me live the adventure. So what about for you? How did your parents' faith, or lack thereof, shape you, form you, make you? Let me ask this another way to the parents in the room. Parents, what are your kids learning about faith by watching you right now? What are they learning? You want to be sobered really quick, parents? You start wrestling with that question. You might say this. Kids, um, like like kids, listen, we need to trust God, kids. 
But we're, we're not going to read God's word consistently, though God's word clearly shows us how to trust him and why we should. Hey, kids, listen. Listen to daddy. Like, we need to trust God, kids. But the only time we're ever going to pray together as a family is around the meal. That's when we're going to, and kids, seriously, I, we're going to take it seriously. We're going to even, we're going to hold hands. Before anyone puts a piece of food, we're going to hold hands as a family, you know? And you like look around and your kids are like, come on, seriously, what is this, right? No, kids, seriously, we need to trust God. But you're never going to see mom and dad ever share their faith. Ever talk to others about trusting God. Come on, kids, we need to trust God. I feel like so many of us are right there. You're like, yeah, yeah, but my, but my kid's three. Yeah. Praise God, they're three. And already forming and I would venture to say at one, two, three months old, as I have three of my own, those kids are already looking to mommy and daddy. Those kids' faith is already being shaped. Now let me say this. I cannot save my children, as frustrating as that is. Any other parents frustrated by that? I can't save my kids, but I can teach and show my kids what it looks like to trust in the Savior. Are you with me? I can't save my children, but I can show my kids what it looks like to trust in the Savior. God saves them. God will reach down. In His timing, I plead and save my children. But in the meanwhile, I better pastor my home. My kids better watch Daddy stepping out in faith and trusting that God will accomplish His plan apart from Daddy's ability. You see what I'm saying? My kids better see monumental Steps of faith in the lives of mommy and daddy. So when they grow up, God saves them. They say, yeah, yeah, when my, when my parents were parenting me on a consistent basis, I got to watch them talk about their faith, have folks who didn't believe in Christ over to the, over to the house. I got to watch them love on us. Like I saw faith, right? That's what we see here in Moses. His parents take a huge step of faith, risk their own lives in the hopes that God would do something with Moses. It's kind of a crazy story. Because right after this, um, baby gets hard to hide, okay? I don't know if you have like four or five, six month old. When they get mobile, okay, things get a little bit more difficult. So here's uh, the rest of Moses' story. This will kind of catch us up. When she could hide him no longer, chapter 2, verse 3, she took, him, uh, she took for him a basket made of um, bulrushes. Don't know what that is, to be honest. And... Uh, and daubed it with a bitumen and pitch. It's not a ball. Uh, it's kind of like tar. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds of the riverbank. Again, if you've ever seen Prince of Egypt, it's 100% biblical. clears it all up for you, right? Um, and his sister stood at a, dis- at a distance to know what would be done with him. Now, now, this, again, takes a tremendous amount of faith. Can't hide her kid anymore. Don't want him to die. We're going to make a boat for him and send him down the river, right? Wouldn't recommend this in today's context, right? But... This is what's happening here, verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside uh, the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman. And she took it. This is one of the clearest times in the scripture, like I imagine God's hand literally on this little basket, you know, putting it in front of Pharaoh's daughter, like here, pretty girl, right? And when she opened it, like a present, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. So she took pity on him, that's good, and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. She must have been able to tell just by the look. Then his, Moses' sister, who's followed the basket, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you, right? Because uh, as a good Egyptian Pharaoh's daughter here, she really like wants the present, really doesn't want to do the work, nor could she at this point, verse 8. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Is anyone else, listen, I I know if you grew up in the church, you heard this story once or thrice. Isn't this just awesome? Like, mother makes this basket, this little mini Titanic, sends the kid down the Nile, the kid gets picked up, and all of a sudden the mother is going to get to raise the child again. Like, this is one of the unbelievable, crazy, sovereign moments in all of the scripture. And so Pharaoh's daughter said, take the child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. In fact, we're going to pay you for it. This is a great deal. (laughs) 
So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, by all estimations, anywhere between 3 and 12. I know that narrows it right down for us. I'm guessing closer to 3. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and she became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So Moses' life has this crazy beginning. Supposed to die, gets sent down a river, picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, and soon becomes, as Acts alludes, a prince. Goes from a Jew, a Hebrew, who all of the people are enslaved, and soon rises in power. And that's why we pick up here in verse 24. Next slide. These next two verses of Hebrews 11 say, By faith Moses. Is anyone else interested in the irony of that statement? To a Jew, what's Moses most connected to? Two things, right? Freedom from slavery out of Egypt, and what else? The law. So if the writer of Hebrews is writing to a bunch of Jews who are struggling letting go of the law, does anyone else find it ironic that the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Moses? No Jew would have ever said those three words would be in the same sentence together. Because it wasn't like it's, it's, it's the law. It's by the law that we get to God. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, no, no. It's been the same from the beginning. By faith, trust in God. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, uh, we have a tremendous amount of work to do here. Again, let's uh, find the story here in Exodus. We continue in verse 11 of chapter 2. Next slide. One day, when Moses had grown up, he's 40. Uh, I know many of you guys uh, used the term grown up much before 40, but in this case, Moses, when he had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, and like the mafia, hit him in the sand. Right? So he goes out, the scripture says, recognizes that these are his people. Remember, he's grown up an Egyptian. So something happens. Listen, crazy, crazy, crazy. Stephen. Many of you guys will know uh, the, the name, others won't. He's one of the first Christian martyrs. He's stoned to death. Gives this awesome speech before he dies. And Stephen says this in his speech before he dies. Look at this in Acts 7. When he was 40 years old, talking about Moses, it came into his heart to visit his what? His brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, He defended and oppressed the man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. So here's what happens. Moses walks out. He's growing up, trained, learned as an Egyptian. He walks out, and what does Stephen say? Something happens to what? His heart. He had been around Egyptians and had been around Jews all of his life, but this one particular day, he walks out and everything changes. And what I love about the scripture is it says, what? His people. One other observation. Does it say the guy's name that he was defending? No. All it says is that this guy was a Hebrew. I pull back from all this. and I admire and am drawn to Moses' loyalty. Something happens in his heart. And it makes this man crazy loyal Uh, and it begs me to ask you this question what would you say right now you're loyal to you're just to start processing in your mind you're to start jotting out nicely bulleted what you're loyal to what would be there Uh, Heidi and I uh, just got back we were able to uh, head to a Colorado Um, Heidi mentioned this as well but our best dates seem to happen in Colorado here of late and um we, on Sunday, had uh, to drop off a, a couple who were with us, and uh, then we decided that we were going to go down to the Broncos game. Now, uh, I know many of you guys are becoming Tebow fans. You think he's the fourth part of the Trinity. He is not. Uh, as, as much as you would like him to be our Christian poster child, uh, he is a man. However, he is representing us well so far. I was excited to watch him play. So there Heidi and I are. Crazy scene. We get in the stadium. 
uh, like right when the doors open. It's the best spectator. I've been to a ton of spectator sports. Best experience I've ever had. I got my bride right there. Rascal Flats singing the national anthem. F-16s flying over. Parachuters coming down. I look over. Heidi and I are both like crying. Like, this is awesome, you know. <laughs> Team, the fourth part of the Trinity's out there. I mean, this is great, you know. Just a powerful moment. But the one thing I started realizing was this. The one thing I started realizing was this. Like, you know, because at the playoff time, you know what they do. Like, everyone gets one of those little, like, things, right? Little towels, right? So everyone's, and what's crazy is, like, the person who's only cheered for the Broncos when they win and who sits on a couch bought a ticket and showed up that day and all of a sudden becomes super fan. See what I'm saying? And, like, all of a sudden, they're, like, waving the towel, and it would give the appearance that every person in that stadium is completely loyal to the Denver Broncos. Well, if they would have lost, what would have happened? Like, dude, Tebow is the worst. Like, we, we need to get Orton back here. That won't mean anything to some of you. Some of you enjoy football, you will, right? Like, we, like, we need to get rid of this coach. Why do we ever fire Josh McDaniel? All of this stuff. The, the loyal are just loyal in appearance. Many. The people that you started thinking of or the things that you started thinking of that you're loyal to, is it just an appearance? It's interesting that... Um, one of the things that make us loyal and one of the things that made Moses loyal was he was willing to go all the way to show his loyalty. It's one thing to wave a flag. It's another thing to kill someone. I'm not recommending it. But in Moses' case, it showed how intense his loyalty is. And just because you're loyal to something doesn't mean you should be. It's why the abused woman, abused day in and day out by her husband, for some reason, is finding value in that relationship and remains loyal to that man, though she should never. Are we together? So there's many things in your life that you remain loyal to that you shouldn't be at all. But all this, to me, starts to dig down in my heart and ask the question, who and what should I be loyal to? Well, the Bible is clear. My loyalty should land in one place, and that's God the Father. In all of the things that God encompasses, including His children. When I start to think about my loyalties, the things that it better include are God, and it better include His children. It better include, rather, the church. And not just pieces of the church, but all the church. Paul, when he's closing his letter in Corinth, said this. I love this. Obsessed with this, actually. Next slide. Uh, next slide. Do we have the Corinth passage in there? Yeah, there we go. Finally, brothers, this is his closing here in 2 Corinthians. Rejoice. Here's what he says to the church. Look at this. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. And live in peace. I start thinking about the loyalties that we should share just because we're believers. Moses walks out, he sees a Hebrew, God does something in his heart, and it changes everything. And that's what God has done in us in giving us the Spirit. The Spirit in Acts 2 was the mark of the church. It, what's, it's what began the church. Now we're united through one Spirit. And yet what I see is so many segments, so many, and I hate the word clicks, so many loyalties to this group and that group instead of a deep loyalty and burden because that person bears the name son of God, daughter of God, just like me. What would happen in our culture, in your life, if our loyalty was as simple as you are God's kid? And so though we disagree on some things, Though we live life differently, though we look differently, though I approach parenting different than you do, I love you. Why? Because you're God's kid. And so then many of you would be like, good, 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 good. I'm glad you're hitting on this because, man, I, what I want to do, what I want to celebrate is the church, right? And it's all those other people. I can't wait to show my disloyalty to those people. Yeah, problem is if you read your Bible, Jesus says things like, like love your enemies. Those who hate you love those people too right? And so there is no exemption clause for love in the scripture. We all to love everyone and we can't even love each other. That's why Paul ends letters all over like this. Live in peace, live in harmony, agree. Like there's no 
reason that we should look across the church and put all these dividers between us. Here's what I want to ask. Um, who in the church right now, even in this community, do you have this perception of that has become extremely judgmental? In fact, it, you've begun to hate someone in this room. And what you realize is, it may not even be for rightful reason. It may just be because they're not quite like you or maybe they don't like you. What does it look like to be loyal to one another just because we're believers? Again, I'm not saying we should start killing people because of that. But what does Jesus say? He says, greater love than no one than this if he lays down his life for his brother. That's what true love is, right? So Hebrews goes on after we see this picture back in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. This tremendous loyalty. He's like, no. Instead, verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. And what did the scripture say? His people. Than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I grew up in traditional church. The message that I heard often was sin is horrible. Sin is no fun. Sin has no pleasure. So it would behoove you, great word, it would behoove you to not choose sin because it stinks, it's horrible, it's wretched, and to choose something else. That's not the message you're going to hear at Matthias' lot. As the Bible describes, sin has pleasure. A amen, right? Like if, there, if you should be amening anything, right? Like all of us can amen. Oh, yeah, amen, right? Like, Lived it all day long. Amen. All day, right? right? Sin has pleasure. You're never going to hear at Matthias, don't sin because it doesn't have pleasure. It does. What you're going to hear at Matthias is it's fleeting. It's fleeting. Uh, the Hebrew word here is, or the Greek word rather, is seasonal. It's short. It's short-lived. You, you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy sin and it will end. It always ends. It never continues. It's always fleeting, right? And so the picture here is Moses does something in his choosing. So let's look at it like this. Next slide, a little graph. This should be fun. The options for Moses was, next slide, to choose either an identity that was rooted in the people of God. He's grown up Egyptian, though he was always a Jew. So he comes to this moment in his life where it was choose to be the people of God that he always has been, the called Hebrew or Jew, or to be a son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's his options as the scripture describes. And those both have results. The scripture's clear about that in verse 24 and 25. The results, next slide, to be a person of God, the result was going to be mistreatment. That sounds awesome, doesn't it? Oh yeah, I'm going to go with that one. I get mistreated. I don't get to experience the fleeting pleasures of sin. And that's the result of staying the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Not inherently, but in this case, the result is the pleasure of sin. Listen, he comes to this moment in his life. And what Moses realized is two lives is one too many. I have to choose one. It's time to choose one now. So many of you walked into this room and you've done phenomenal at acting. I mean, you are incredible at it. It's like one of your greatest gifts. You majored in drama in life. Like you have just done an awesome job tricking everyone. One foot in the world, one foot in the church, acting however you can to each particular group. And you're getting tired because you realize that living two lives actually takes way more work than living one. Because you're constantly having to backtrack, cover up the seat, make sure you're telling the same stories to the same people so that no one would find you out. Two lives are one too many. Moses comes to that point and everything changes. And what I'm wondering tonight is would you? Would you come to that point and that recognition where you're tired of living in two lives? Now, here's what happens. In the church, it's not like this is a new message, right? Like, hey, you're living two lives, one in the world, one in the flesh, one in the spirit. Well, here's what I've responded to anytime I've heard that as a hearer. 
is I said, yeah, 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 like right on. Like I want to be one person. I want to be the same person, one life. That's what I want to do. And so my response, and I would even say the teachings prodding, has been that I should be the same everywhere. So the same person in action that I am here is exactly who I should be out there. And just in saying it, we would all be like, oh yeah, that's good. Have you ever stopped to think about it? The premise that we should be the same right here as we are in Llewellyn's. If that were true, then we would move the chairs around. Like we'd have a rocking band, right? All of a sudden, I'd stand on the bar, start throwing down, right? <laughs> Preach together, we would pray. It's, it's the same picture of saying that I would speak to a 21-year-old the same as my grandfather. I would speak to them differently, and that would be okay. Are you with me? To the 21-year-old, I might have a couple more bros in there. We might handshake a little bit differently, right? He might understand some things about culture and context differently. When I talk to my grandfather, whoa, there's no bros, right? I mean, it's a firm handshake. It's a yes, sir. It's all, you know, bend a knee if I need to. You know what I'm saying? You speak, I listen. And both completely appropriate. You see what I'm saying? Paul says it in many ways, including be all things to all people. What his point is, is listen, we don't need to all of a sudden throw our Christian paraphernalia all over the place. What we need to do is live differently. Now, I want to flesh this out a whole lot more because I know so many of you have grown up in the church or at least in your understanding and you still think that the response to one life is that you just walk out here and you do all the same stuff that you're doing now or in the Bible study that you would do over there. Here's our response typically. First, we do this. Next slide. We move to legalism. So we take this teaching, one life, and we say, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it, I get it. So all the things um, that I read in the Bible about actions, then all those things that I just, I just need to do those, plow through them no matter what the situation. I'm just, I'm not talking about general obedience. I'm talking about all the things that I add or the people in the church. And what we do in legalism, next slide, is that it, it has no contextualization. That's what legalism is. Let me explain contextualization. For the 21-year-old, I know his story, his background. I understand him. I know what speaks to him. I understand his context. And so to contextualize the 21-year-old is to know how to speak to him, talk, ask questions. Same for my grandfather. It's contextual. I understand where he comes from. I know he's a World War II vet. I know calling him bro will get me a smack in the face. You know what I'm saying? Like I understand that. Legalism has no contextualization. Legalism walks out in the culture and says, I don't care what any of you think, and your Superman Jesus shirt comes open. You know what I'm saying? And your cape's out, and you, you know, you're, you're on the street corner with the bullhorn. You don't care what anyone thinks. You're just reading the Bible and thinking that there's no contextualization in any of those things, and you're just plowing forward. That's what you think that that means. Hey, Mark, Mark told you said one life. So that's how I am with all these people, so certainly that's okay. Well, then there's a whole other crew who already in your heart, you're moving to this, loose liberty. You're like, yeah, 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 that's all nice and all. But dude, we're supposed to live in the culture, Mark. Have you read your scriptures? Yes, I have, right? You're like, no, 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 like, dude, we're hanging, we're hanging anywhere that lost people are and we're, we're just doing our thing. We're building relationships for 15 years, right? And never mentioning you know, and we're just able to play in fantasy leagues together and never talking of the things of Christ. And that's, that's loose liberty. And I know so many of you are trying to figure that out. Like, who, who are to be my friends? And in loose liberty, look at this. It's over-contextualization. You're like, oh, no, no, no. But I, like, Jesus said I need to be, like, not, not in, in the world but not of the world. So that means I just do whatever. Listen, if you find yourself in response to living one life on either of these spectrums, you find yourself doing what I have done most of my life. Hold on, the Bible says I, I'm not supposed to live two lives. I'm not supposed to be a hypocrite. I'm supposed to be true to my word. So some days I'm like, okay, yeah, I get really fired up and then it becomes legalism. And you know what the, non, the non-believers do? They look at that and you're like, you're just like all the other Christians. And then on the other side, when I'm really feeling free in Christ, hanging with my boys, my language starts to shift 
my actions start to change. I find myself compromising all in the name of over-contextualization, all in the name of loose liberty, and what you would say, all in the name of Jesus. Living one life is not loose liberty. It's not legalism. It's this. It's spirit-guided. Next slide, please. Spirit-guided and God-glorifying. I finally come to this realization that living one life means when I'm with the 21-year-old, I glorify God. When I'm with my grandfather, I glorify God. Crazy thing happens. God gives us the Spirit. He's in us. And what Jesus says is that the Spirit is a good thing. In fact, Jesus says, I need to go so the Spirit can reside in you and the Spirit's going to guide you. That's what the Bible says. And so if that's true, if the Spirit is guiding me, then when I'm with those who don't believe, I have to trust that if my focus is glorifying God and not feeding the desires, the fleeting desires of my flesh, that God will direct me in conversation and love. And on the same token, if I'm over here on the legalistic side or beginning to get there, that God would remind me of the freedom I have in Christ. And that one life is to be lived, as 1 Corinthians 10 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This isn't rocket science, so why has it taken me so long to understand it? Why do I finally step back from Moses and realize this? If he over-contextualized, what would he have done? Kill everyone. Right? If he would have got legalistic with it, he's like, yeah, so all of you are Egyptians that aren't Hebrews. So, like, I'm getting out my, all of a, my Jesus grenade launcher all of a sudden, and I'm just smoking. He doesn't do that. Guess what happens? For 40 years, he moves into the next season of his life, and that's in a whole different land, getting a wife, preparing for his call. 40 years after that, God then calls him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. His interest is glorifying God. He doesn't over-contextualize. He doesn't under. He lives guided by his faith and trust that God is good. So I know so many of you today, you walk in this room, you're like, yeah, um, I am. I'm a complete fake. I'm, I haven't figured out how to be this person at work and, so, and then different here. I don't know what that looks like. Here's what it looks like. You glorify God all the time. You're interested in exalting him all the time. That will take care of itself. It will. You stay rooted in the scripture, not out of legality, because you long to see his character and his word just start speaking to you and showing you. Now you go, I got a text today from a girl who was at Picasso's, and she says, the spirit's prompting me to enter into this conversation at Picasso's where this person is reading a tarot card, is that how you pronounce it, to another person. They're talking astrology. She's like, the spirit's prompting me just to like step into this conversation. And who am I to say at that moment, yeah, I don't think so. That well, wouldn't be good. No, she's like, and so she says, she sends me a text. She said, I'm going for it. Pray for me, right? I'm like, right on, man. Like, go for it. Like, that's what, yes, spirit-guided going for it, right? And she, I, I finally text her after an hour and a half. I'm like, I'm hoping she's not dead or something. You know, like, what happened in Picasso's? And she's like, it was, it was unbelievable. Like, pray for this girl because I can tell she's searching and she's following this, you know, this, this person. But I, 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 like, saw her listening to truth. Listen, this whole journey of faith for us, all of us, has been hearing God's voice and acting. That's what every character is doing. They're listening to God's voice and something is happening in them. They're trusting that God is in control. And in this moment, Moses, he shows that two lives is one too many. And listen, all this ends so beautifully as it should in verse 26. He considered Moses... The reproach of Christ, greater wealth, listen to this, than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Listen, Egypt, um, one of the wealthiest um, empires of the day. Moses, for 40 years, would have been some of the most educated people in the entire world. He's extremely educated. Obviously, his connection to Pharaoh would have meant that uh, all of the wealth of Egypt was literally at his fingertips. And at the end of it for him, he aligned with all of a sudden we're talking about an Old Testament character and who? And Jesus. 
Uh, listen to this. In John 5, crazy story. You'll have to check it out later. I believe it's verse 47, 48, one of the two, 46 maybe. Jesus says, because uh, he's challenging the Jews, and he's like, I know you guys really love that Moses guy. Did you know that Moses talked about me? That's what Jesus said. He's like, like, you guys need to read your Bible again. Go back and read the Pentateuch. Like Moses understood that a Messiah was coming. And so Moses considered the a, a reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. What it means is this. Is there are similarities between Moses and Jesus. Similarities. The similarities are this. Moses, loyal to his people. Christ, come on. Loyal to his people. Loyal to his father first, praise God. And then loyal to his children. That's why the scripture is so profoundly impacting. He will never leave you or forsake you. Never, never. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, he said. The second thing is that he was willing to suffer for his faith. Both Moses and Jesus found their faith with mistreatment. Notice the word mistreatment. And so as we sit back and look at the example of Moses and we look at the example of Jesus, we say, what is there to learn from these examples? It means this. There is a passion in Moses with flaw and Jesus flawlessly that looks to the Father, waits for his voice, and says, you guide me and I will do whatever. I can't live two lives. I won't live two lives. I will live one and it will be for your glory. And that's why the scripture says they live with the same reproach. Like their, their eyes weren't focused on fleeting things, but rather on the eternal reward. Beautiful, beautiful text. So I want to say this before we end. I know many of you guys walk in here and Jesus still feels like a fairy tale. It's like a nice thing the church people talk about. Uh, let me tell you this. And I really just stop and say this. He has completely changed my life. Completely. The simplicity of the gospel is this. He has reached down into my born into sin heart. And he has breathed new life. And what the Bible says made me a new creation. He's done that in me. And I know he's done it in many of you. And he can do it in your heart too if he hasn't yet. The powerful picture of Christ is his loyalty and obedience to the Father. And what that meant was a bloody cross, a perfect Savior, and then an empty tomb as he conquers death so that you could live eternally too, you see? But I know so many of you till, still, even as Christians, you walk in here. Next slide. And this isn't your answer. If I were to ask you to answer this right now, I am. There wouldn't be one blank. It would look something more like this. And then underneath each of those blanks would be like other lists, right? Like it would be like, okay, yeah, and, and, and then in this thing, I'm actually this, but it's because of this, and you're like justifying all of it. Hey, I know, I, like I need to explain with these people, just understand, like there's this, no, no, no. There's nothing to understand. There, there's nothing to understand. The biblical call is that, next slide, we're, we're just this. Paul says it this way, next slide. That's, that's, that's all he says. He says, I'm, a, I'm of Christ. That's who I am. There's not two lives of that. There's not multiple personalities. There's not this option or that option. I am of Christ. I'm a son of God, a called man of God, and I am nothing else. I need nothing else. So listen, for those of you tonight that walked in, a fake, a fraud, a phony, you've done a phenomenal job tricking us, yourself, the powerful message of the grace of Christ is two lives is one too many. Repent, turn from your sin, claim victory in the grace of Christ, and trust that the Spirit inside of you will guide your life to glorify Him in all circumstances. That's our call. And when we fail, we rest and trust that His grace is sufficient. But you know what? We don't take advantage of it. We continue to look to the cross, to the great reward, and say, God, please give me discernment. Show me how it is I'm supposed to be at work, how it is I'm supposed to be around these Christian people, because I do desire to have the same heart, and the same heart is to God be the glory all the time. Let's stand together.
so when I was in college, I was a fairly sheltered, and I remember the first week of two days, and uh, I was the only Christian on a, a floor of forty. And uh, I remember the first night that everyone got like drunk. Really hadn't been around that much. And so I'm like watching all of this happen and all these people indulge and drink. And then all of the effects of what all of that did. And it made me realize a couple things instantaneously. Num- uh, number one, that when I saw them the next morning in the hangover, that sin is certainly fleeting, the pleasure. <laughs> like I saw all of these guys that I was playing football with in stupors in their own vomit. And I was like, is that ser- is that, is this seriously fun, right? But their memory was short-lived, right? And it's just like the next night back in their vomit. The scripture says like a dog returns to his vomit, right? But the other thing I realized that very night was this, is it would be so easy in that moment to judge every single one of those guys be so easy in that moment to look with a, a view of condemnation and say, oh you, oh, you know what? Like, here I am, Mark the Jesus person, the only not drunk person on this entire floor. Look to me. And if that's ever our message as the church, my friends, it is self-righteousness. And so what I started to do that night with all of those guys is I started to love them, live as best I could, spirit-led, and show them that the answer wasn't to look to me as the Holy One, but to look to the One who's worthy in Christ. And many of you guys who know my story know that later the next year, 15 of my football teammates gave their life to Christ on my dorm room floor as God was changing hearts and morphing and using a punk like me to sit amidst culture and to navigate through it. And navigating through it meant, God, you must show me because I don't want to be two-faced. I want to be spirit-led. I want to glorify you. So help me love this world like you told me to. So I want to pray that for you. So God, um, I pray tonight that my friends in this room, my brothers and sisters, that you'll change their hearts, that you'll change mine, that you'll do a tremendous work in us, that causes us, Father, to leave legalism and loose liberty and rest in the fact that you've given us your spirit. God, for, the, for those tonight, God, that have just been hiding under a pit of shame and regret or just feeling like that they can somehow live multiple lives, God, help us believe that you, that you see it all. God, help us um, believe tonight. Help us trust that we cannot hide from you. Adam and Eve tried that too. God, help us see that, that that you are always there. So God, I pray tonight that your grace would be sufficient for the fake and the phony and for the two-faced, God, that you would break us and break them at their knees tonight. Restore us, God. Help us believe that it is possible to live for your glory and nothing else. God, help us believe that you're good.